Please pray with me. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think with them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. If you've ever listened to NPR on a Saturday evening, then you have likely at some point heard Garrison Keillor's A Prairie Home Companion. It's been off the air for a couple of years, uh, but if you've listened in the past, then you've probably heard him at some point in your life. For those who have never heard it, Keillor's show was a a variety show, a a show recorded in Minnesota, and Keillor and his various actors and comedians and musicians would would stage this old-timey radio show complete with with skits and with sound effects, with songs, and with many different stories scattered throughout the two-hour, uh, two-hour-long show. I found that whenever I talk about A Prairie Home Companion, most people either love Garrison Keillor in that show or they hate Garrison Keillor in that show, and I'm not tr- going to try to change whichever camp you find yourself in this morning. But toward the end of Of each show, Keeler would offer his news from Lake Wobegon. It was a monologue about his fictional hometown out there on the prairie. He'd talk about the local Roman Catholic Church, Our Lady of Perpetual Responsibility. He'd talk about dining in the Chatterbox Cafe. He'd talk about shopping at Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery Store, where if you can't find it at Ralph's, you can probably get along pretty good without it. And after that, he'd finish his his 10 or 12 minute monologue with, with this. He'd say, well, that's the news from Lake Wobegon where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. A number of years ago, a group of social psychologists wrote about what they call the Lake Wobegon effect, also called illusory superiority. Illusory superiority is a a cognitive bias whereby individuals create their own social reality, often overestimating their own qualities or abilities in relation relation to others, both both in good ways and in not-so-good ways. About a decade ago, a group of psychologists writing about the Lake Wobegon effect in the journal Social Psychology surveyed one million high school students and found that only 2% of the students said that they were below average in their leadership abilities. Only 20,000 out of a million high schoolers thought that they had below average leadership abilities. And so the psychologist concluded by writing that like the mythical residents of Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon, most of us need to believe that we are above average, whether it's true or not. The problem with life, of course, is that we don't live in a Lake Wobegon world. As you all know, life can be messy, life can be hard, life isn't perfect. We aren't perfect no matter how highly we think of ourselves. And even when we think that things will work out well, sometimes, sadly, they do not. One of the great privileges that that I have uh, in the work that I get to do is that that I get to spend a, a lot of time, a good bit of time, working with couples as they prepare for, for marriage, for their wedding day. We're right 
sort of in the middle of wedding season here at St. John's Church. Most weekends in the fall of each year, we have couples getting married in this sacred space. I officiated at a wedding last weekend. We had a wedding here just yesterday. Next weekend, I'll do another wedding. The weekend after that, I'll do another wedding. Weddings are wonderful celebrations, wonderful opportunities for us to to celebrate a new couple as they begin their, their married life. And as I sit with those couples and prepare them for their wedding day and for life together, I can tell you that I've never met a couple who said to me, you know, this marriage isn't going to work out. That's, that's not typically the way that most couples think as they are preparing for their wedding day. Instead, they think and say something like, we're excited to be together forever. And that's the right response. If, if I ever met a couple that said to me something like, I don't think this marriage is going to work out in the long run, it would be my responsibility as a priest in the church to, to counsel them to reconsider uh, this, this marriage that they are about to enter into. And that's never happened, and that's because in the church, at least, we, we set a high bar, and we tell couples that marriages, marriages are intended to be lifelong commitments. Marriage, we say in the church, is a covenant and not a contract. Contracts can be broken. We can get out of contracts if we need to. We can find ways to wiggle out. But a covenant is different. A covenant is meant to last, to endure to the end. Covenants, we say, are unbreakable. And so it's with all of that in mind that we turn to our gospel passage appointed for today. And it's a doozy. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against him. This passage is sometimes listed listed under the heading, Hard Sayings of Jesus, which I've always thought was a bit of an understatement. This passage, in addition to being hard, it can also be painful and agonizing, maybe even distressing when we hear it. The biblical scholar F.F. Bruce once wrote a book in the 80s about some of the hard sayings of Jesus, and he, he groups today's passage with Jesus saying, anyone who loves their father or their mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the passage that we'll hear next Sunday from Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says to the rich, rich young man, sell, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. That's, that's another hard saying of Jesus, and, and Bruce gets to tackle it next Sunday. Thankfully, I'm glad for that. (laughs) But our passage for today, it begins with with the Pharisees trying to test Jesus. As Jesus is, is journeying beyond the Jordan, he's stopped by the crowds who want to hear him teach. And it's while he's stopped that he has this conversation with some of the religious leaders. Is it is it lawful, they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus responds, What did Moses command you? What does the law say? And the Pharisees paraphrase Deuteronomy 24, which which they rightly say permits a man to divorce his wife if he finds something objectionable about her. And Jesus tells them that it's only because of the hardness of their hearts that this law was given. He then goes on to quote a bit of the book of Genesis. And it's only later, it's only when he's alone with his disciples that he takes all of this a step further and says that anyone who divorces and remarries commits adultery. There is no doubt about it. This, this is a hard saying that Jesus gives us today. And it's, it's hard. It's hard because all of us know someone, all of us love someone who has gone through the pain of divorce and who 
maybe is now happily remarried. Some of us, even in this church today, have been divorced. Many of us, myself included, are are children of divorce. And so it stings when we hear Jesus say something like this. Scholars have spent a whole lot of time looking at this passage, looking at at marriage in Jesus' day and comparing it to marriage in our own day. They they tell us that marriage in the ancient world was primarily about economic and and social stability, about creating interfamily alliances. A woman's sexuality, they, they say, was essentially the property of her father, and then once she was married, it became the property of her husband. Additionally, at least when we read the Old Testament, great economic and social stability could be gained by taking, by taking multiple wives. Our scriptures say that Moses had three wives. David had seven wives, the last of whom he married only after having her first husband killed. Solomon, King Solomon, according to 1 Kings, had 700 wives, not to mention the 300 concubines that he also kept. Marriage in the ancient world was not primarily about love, but what about power? In our day, marriage has changed greatly. It's now much less about economics and more about seeking mutual fulfillment. That's how our prayer book talks about it in the marriage rite. The union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy, for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity. And the prayer book says when it is God's will for the procreation of, the, of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. And even more recently in our nation and in the Episcopal Church, we've, we've finally said what gay and lesbian men and women have known for a long, long time, that they too are capable of entering into faithful, mutually fulfilling, loving relationships, and that God's grace is at work in their lives too. Shame on us for taking so long to come to that realization, and thank you to our LGBT sisters and brothers for not abandoning us completely along the way. As our, as our former rector rightly said, we are a better church because of you. Our understanding of marriage has thankfully changed over time, but, but I don't think that those changes render this hard saying that we hear Jesus speak today as, as irrelevant or outdated. We should rightly hold fast to the belief that when two people when two people reverently and deliberately enter into a sacred bond with each other, then the the hope is, the prayer is, that that bond will endure, that it will last. That is the counsel that I and every other priest in the church gives to an engaged couple as they prepare for the marriage journey. And yet we know that marriages are not static. Some marriages flourish and deepen, but some do end with divorce. What I believe, what I believe is that God did not intend for people to get divorced when God created heaven and earth. I believe that. But I also believe, with all my heart, that God also did not intend for people to be in marriages that are abusive or adulterous or loveless. I do believe that divorce is sometimes necessary in order for both people to in the relationship to live and to thrive and to grow. But we don't take that step lightly, and whenever possible, our calling is to seek reconciliation. 
So what, what do we do with this hard saying that Jesus speaks to us today? What, what can this passage be saying to those of us who are married or divorced or remarried, as well as those who are not married or who have no, no desire to be married? Can this passage speak to all of us gathered here today? I, I think that it does. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about right relationships, our right relationships with God and our right relationships with each other. And I think that he's doing the very same thing today. Listen again to the words that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees when when they challenge him. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. In other words, Jesus says they, they need a change of heart. Jesus says to us today, maybe we too need a change of heart. It's important to remember what the heart represented in the ancient world. Aristotle, writing all the way back in the 4th century BCE, thought that the heart was the center of our intelligence, the center of our thoughts, the the very center of our life. The brain, he and others thought, had little to do with all those things. It was the heart that was closely linked to our soul. To have a change of heart was to change one's life, to change one's very being. And that's the the Christian task in a nutshell, to change our hearts, to, to reorient our lives, to journey in a new direction so that we can draw closer to God. And that invitation to have a changed heart extends, extends to the whole world at large. If we want to properly honor and respect and care for one another, then we do it by striving to change our hearts. I think that when Jesus talks about a hardened heart, he's he's talking about a way of being, a way of living that is opposed to the way of the kingdom of God. The call today is to examine and to turn our very lives around to, as our presiding bishop likes to call it, the way of love. Bishop Curry says that we were made by the power of love, and our lives were meant and are meant to be lived in that love. That's why we are here, he says. We don't live in a a Lake Wobegon world. None of us are perfect, and at times life and love and relationships with others will be tough, they will be challenging, they may be even downright awful, and we, for our own good, need to find a way out but we can certainly strive for perfection. We can seek to have holy, healthy, life-giving relationships with those around us. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is another hard saying that Jesus speaks to us in Matthew's Gospel account. Wherever you are, whatever you've gone through or are still going through or may go through in the future, don't hear Jesus' words today as judgment as a measure of your worth, as a person of faith. Instead, hear Jesus' words today as an opportunity, an invitation to be changed, to be transformed, to be shaped by God's way of love. Amen.